Jeff, you are a former Austinite who has made his way out to the West Coast. So the most important question I have for you is, uh, do they have good tacos in San Francisco? They do. The best taco that I have had is actually a burrito. I don't know what the dividing line is between tacos and burritos, but at La Taqueria in the Mission, there is an insanely good taco slash burrito that you can get. It's famous. Uh, there's actually a really good podcast about La Taqueria that I listened to recently, uh, but it's a very well-established business, and I recommend anybody that goes to San Francisco that wants to eat tacos go to La Taqueria. Now, do they differ significantly from uh, Austin or the Tex-Mex style of tacos? They do, um, although I think it's hard to uh, tightcast the Austin taco because Torchy's Tacos had some significant innovation and opened up the floodgates in terms of what you can put inside of a taco. This is true. Very true. Um, and I think that's interesting you mentioned the burrito thing because that's something I often notice like when I go to the West Coast, that there's breakfast burritos. But here in Austin, it's really just breakfast tacos. So that's another great mystery. Like, What is the difference between a breakfast burrito and a breakfast taco? I don't know. <laughs> well, we do know they both have eggs, and they usually have unhealthy meats, and they're, they're usually fantastic. So... Well, burrito we, confers a certain size. Of it does. Tortilla. Yeah, you know that's probably the most thing. A size and a certain filling, right? They're maybe just going to you're just going to be overwhelmed at times. Whereas a taco can could maybe be snackable. Whereas a burrito is is usually like a big time meal. So that I um, I'm definitely with you. Well, listen. Uh, first of all, thanks for coming on the show. And you know, I know you have been doing software engineering daily, uh, the daily podcast that everyone should be listening to for for how long? When did you actually start it? Three and a half years ago. Okay, and it's, and for those that maybe have never heard of it, um, what would be your like thirty second description of of Software Engineering Daily? Software Engineering Daily is a daily podcast about technical software topics, and by daily I mean usually five days a week, sometimes six days a week, fifty weeks out of the year, and there is also some written content and expansion into some other categories. But for the most part, it is a daily software podcast. And you do, I think um, you do quite a few interviews, right? Of kind of, I, I feel like of like up and coming technologies or different technologies. So, um, do you hold yourself to like a specific format, or is it just sort of like whatever whatever you're feeling that day? For the most part, I'm pretty conservative, and I do the 50 to 60 minute interview format. But I do occasionally try out other formats which have high variance in terms of uh, listenership being the like what does the best the interviews do the best or or does then some other format sometimes like pop out and surprise you well i've done so what i mean by high variance is that there are a couple episodes i've done where it's a monologue that i write uh where it synthesizes several things i've been thinking about and i just talk and i i write it as a blog post as well some of those are very popular uh some of those are very unpopular and also there was one experiment we did where uh, my, my friend Hasib wanted to just record himself talking through some debugging stories that he read online. And that episode was wildly popular, and we haven't really replicated it in any form or fashion. Really? That, you know, that's funny. I, I, that went in a whole different direction. I thought you were going to say that that didn't do well. So that's interesting. Okay, we'll have to put a link in the, uh, 
the show notes to that episode because uh, I don't think I've heard that one. That sounds really interesting that it did so well. It speaks more to Hasib's charisma and his ability to deliver oration than it does to what he was actually talking about. Okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> I think maybe like like any good podcaster, it's it's up to you, especially when you're by yourself. You got to really carry the show. You got to be ready to go. Well, Hasib could read recipes of burritos and have a good podcast episode. So I, you know, I, I flatter Hasib uh, more than I need to, but he's he's a good friend of mine, and uh, he he really does have um, a serious charisma and uh, um, oration skill. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, so you have made the leap, right? And I think this is kind of an interesting story. And it's actually incredible timing for those that maybe follow the podcast world, which I don't know. It's fairly big, but also sometimes very small. Uh, I think Gimlet Media, you know, they make Startup and Reply All and like a whole bunch of shows. And uh, I think their founder, um, Alex Bloomberg, right, sort of came out of This American Life. So they were just acquired or I think it was finally announced for rumored like $230 million dollars. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, um, that's maybe the, the biggest acquisition of like a podcast company. Uh, but I, I think for maybe let's call it like the smaller indie podcasters like ourselves and other things, it, it does sort of provide some like legitimization to just like, hey, this is like a real thing. Like people um, are really listening to it. Like sometimes not so much anymore, but I know when we started doing it, like at first people just like they kind of just have no idea. Right. They're just like, what is a podcast? And then people sort of like think it's interesting, but they don't necessarily know. Um, how big they can get. So, uh, and then I was, you know, talking with you and kind of seeing your trajectory. You've actually made, this is like your full-time job, right? So a couple of years ago, you decided to just go all in and and make these podcasts five days a week. And that's, this is your primary source of income. Is that true? That's correct. So like, talk us through the story. Like, you know, so three years ago, I, I mean, that's, <laughs> that probably seemed like a pretty big risk. Like what made you decide to actually make the leap? Well, there wasn't much risk. I, am a citizen of the United States. Uh, I have a family that will support me if I fall on hard times. I have a network of friends. And I knew the economics of the software marketing business, um, which is fairly straightforward. If you can get some number of engineers to pay attention to you, you can sell them high margin software and companies will want to sponsor the podcast. Uh, now, that's a, that's a statement about uh, reality. It's not necessarily a statement about how companies are allocating marketing budgets today, but they are coming along in terms of uh, their asymptotic relationship to reality. Uh, that's kind of how the relationship between marketing and reality works. Um, it takes some time. <laughs> so what do you when you say that like uh is that a way of saying that like marketing is is uh slowly becoming aware of the impact of podcasts is is that what you're saying in there That is one dimension to what I was saying Okay and what's the other dimension Well there's a number of dimensions I mean you know starting a podcast business is not very risky uh if you live in the United States and can cook for yourself um uh yeah i mean advertising uh, as an advertising channel it's very underrated um there's some other dimensions mm -hmm. well that's what i found like i you know i think uh i've been encouraged more recently that uh it's gone from 
maybe meeting with somebody in marketing, having to really explain what the podcast is to uh, now they kind of have a budget, right? It's sort of like a part of their budget or potentially they have some extra money they can spend on it. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think it's like the primary spend, of course, but just the fact that it's kind of, they've allocated something, right? Someone has told them about a podcast and they think they're going to try it. Um, so I would say in the last year that has gotten a lot easier, which, which of course we really appreciate. Um, so, you know, I know that you're, you started, right? It was in college. You actually started doing a, uh, uh, is it the uh, software defined or sorry, <laughs> not software. That's that's us. Uh, software engineering radio was that where you actually started out and and kind of got your foot in the door in this podcast world. That's right. Software engineering radio is the longest lived software engineering podcast, and it was pioneered by Marcus Volter, I think is his last name, and it is now run by Robert Blumen, who is an editorial genius when it comes to topics related to software engineering. Okay, and then, uh, so you did that, did you just, you kind of did it part-time or sort of like, you know, how did, how did you actually start doing it with them? I started it in college because they had a call for hosts on the show and I was a rabid listener. I had made it through the entire back catalog, I think, or most of the back catalog. And Robert was kind enough to take a chance on me despite my lack of experience in both podcasting and software engineering. Yeah, and then you, I think you even kind of say, like, when uh, when you started listening to it, like, you had understood, like, I don't know, 10% of the show, and then, you know, by the end, you're, you're hosting it. Is that is that accurate? Closer to 1%. <laughs> but it's good, though. I think it's a good story in the sense of uh, I find this to be true for myself is that, Podcasts really can take you, I guess in your case, from 1% all the way to the host. It's like you can get just an incredible amount of information. Like when you start, it's – and it's also it, – it's like, if you will, because it's you're kind of by yourself. You're just listening to it by yourself. It's like it's okay that you don't know anything. Like no one's really watching you, right? It's just sort of you just keep listening and listening, and, and then you do some reading, and then you know you really can become um, – at least appear as an expert almost on any subject if you listen to enough podcasts. At least that's my theory. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So – um, now, before you did this, though, so where did you go to school? You went to, did you go to UT here in Austin? Is that right? That's right, yes. Okay, so you, you were kind of getting out of school, and it looked like you didn't immediately jump to your own podcast business, that you uh, actually did go out and you know get a couple corporate jobs. And I thought maybe we would, you know, because Amazon, of course, is like always in the news, right? We're always talking about it. So I thought maybe that would be a, an interesting story. Like, how did you actually get hired on to Amazon, and what were you doing there? The hiring process is similar to many big tech companies. It required a phone screen, whiteboarding questions, etc. And I joined Amazon Global, which is a team that manages various aspects of logistics software. And um, I spent eight months there um, working on software and... Um, trying to start some internal projects there uh, that I didn't really get off the ground successfully. But my experience at Amazon was highly formative. And um, if I had to put somebody in charge of running the world, I would certainly take Jeff Bezos very seriously as a candidate. Really interesting. So did you actually write some Amazon six-page memos? Yeah, I wrote three or four. Yeah. And actually, when I... When I left Amazon, the day I left Amazon, I, I forwarded them to Jeff at Amazon.com, and I said, look, 
I, I, I spent eight months here. Um, I'm sorry that I probably didn't deliver uh, as much value as you know the average the average. Can- I was quitting. I was not fired. Right. Um, but but you know I was like I'm sorry. I'm, I you know I didn't really deliver value because you know they spent all this resources like in hiring and onboarding and. You know, I, and so I was like, you know, here's here's like, I'm sorry, this is like, I realize this is not a great uh, return on investment, but here's some ideas for businesses that I was not diplomatic enough to be able to start within your company, but I think these are good ideas, and uh, you know, feel free to use them. That's awesome. So was this like the first and maybe the only email that you ever sent to him directly like this? I think it might have been the second one, actually. Okay, I was going to say that would be awesome if it was sort of <laughs> your, your one shot. You're like, here it is. Uh, well, what like what happened? I mean, because you don't have to go into like too much details, but was it, uh, you know, I've worked, you know, various corporations, and sometimes it's like bureaucracy. Sometimes, um, you know, it's just like not the right time. Like people aren't open to these ideas. Did you find anything specific? Like if you look back on it and say like, you know, why weren't some of these ideas, you know, why was I not successful in pushing them forward? Did something stand out to you? Well, I wasn't successful in pushing them forward because I did not go through the proper channels. Um, you know, they have business development teams, and um, I didn't really try to meet with the business development teams. I kind of tried to just cowboy it up. Um, actually, you know, near the end, I really did try to advocate for one idea that I think had the most uh, potential legs, and I really tried to make it make um, that idea be navigated through the proper channels and uh and i just hit a wall eventually and then i kind of lost my patience (laughs) yeah i think many people listening to this i bet you can relate to that but there is a lot to be said for for good or for bad right that um sometimes like learning and knowing how a company works is as important as the actual idea to like how to like work ideas through channels and getting them seen um so i don't know sometimes it's 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 a frustrating thing at times, right? Because I think everyone wants to believe like an idea just sort of succeeds on its own, but um, it's not always the case, right? Sometimes it, it, it really is. Like, can you work the process? Do you know the right people, or you know, however you however it is to get things in front of you know the proper executives? Yeah, and to some extent, it is highly rational because at a place like Amazon, you have access to such voluminous resources. If there was zero barrier between your crazy idea and having resources allocated to you, resources in terms of human capital, then people would be spinning up really bad ideas and have the uh, hiring budget necessary to implement their bad ideas, and companies would run out of money very quickly. So there needs to be some bureaucracy in place, um, you know, probably there's a little too much at many large companies but it's it's highly rational yeah no it'd be you know it's interesting as you were talking there i was thinking about jeff Bezos or that email jeff and was it jeff and amazon.com i think right i think that's public like anyone can email it's like what must flow into that inbox on like a daily you know just a daily basis like the number of ideas number of pitches right just like reading it all would probably be fascinating probably take you forever but um to your point right it's like you know at some point you got to decide what you are and what you aren't going to do and with so many ideas right that's probably a pretty difficult process probably mm-hmm. so you also worked i think you were an intern i thought you know ebay stands out as another just like big tech company and i just wondered you know one you know what was your experience like at ebay and did anything stand out as being like particularly different between ebay and amazon 
At eBay, I took that internship because I was offered a project that was very interesting to me, and I ended up turning down another internship that I was very excited about uh, because I had gotten uh, allocated a very interesting project at eBay. Um, and then when I joined eBay, they gave me a different project entirely. <laughs> and uh, basically, you know, the entire time I was there, I was like, uh, you know, they would have these intern events and they would be like, how are you enjoying your internship? And, you know, they go around the table and ask all the interns and all the interns are like, oh, I'm having a great time. I'm building all this cool stuff. And they would get around to me and I'd be like, I am not working on what I was told I would be working on. Uh, you know, I'm 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 driving up north uh, on on Mopac every morning. Uh, and, you know, that's the best time of day because I get to listen to a podcast and then I get to work and it's just like refactoring a really annoying spring thing. And I'm like, this is not what I signed up for. And they're like, OK, that's great. Next person. You know, so um, it wasn't a great experience, to be honest. But at the end, you know, I got a job offer because they were like, look, we get it. You know, we, we we're doing things wrong. And uh, and, you know, you, you we would love to bring you on. Um, and I was like, sorry, you know, like you missed your chance. That is so, uh, I don't know that, you know, that just, that seems while I didn't go well for you, like, I feel like that's like the perfect internship, right? Because you just got to see like, almost, I wish everyone could have an internship like that. Cause like, that was a real glimpse into corporate America, right? Not the, cause sometimes I've been to places where they have these intern programs that are very, like almost isolated. They're not even like really like a job, right? They're kind of doing these, they're going to social events and they're doing maybe some projects that are just, uh, don't really have any stakes and maybe they're fun. Maybe in your case they weren't, but it was just, you know, it's, it's sort of like kind of this fake world. And I always feel like a lot of times the interns maybe leave with like a bad impression. Like, no, this isn't really. So the fact that you got there and they're like immediately like, yeah, you can't work on that. You have to work on this. It's uh, I don't know. It, it maybe offered you like more uh, experience than you wanted, but it sounds like that was, uh, I, I would say it was a very helpful experience to have early in your career. I guess. I mean, you could kind of say that about anything. Like, yeah, that's you true. know, you could say having the stomach flu is a really helpful experience <laughs> with the right attitude, certainly. Yeah. Well, uh, well, that takes me to the the other thing that that jumped out at me is that uh, you you clearly have thought a lot about risk, and I I've got to hear about this this experience. Uh, you know, you said you were actually a professional poker player at one point. I don't know. Are you are you still a professional poker player? Is this is this true? No. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not anymore. I was in high school and in early days of college. I was an online poker player back when it was pretty easy, um, but I don't do it anymore. So, I, like, uh, so I, was this mostly like Texas Hold'em, kind of the, I don't know, one of the most popular games in poker? Was that where you're playing most of the time? Yeah, mostly No Limit Hold'em. Okay, and then were you playing exclusively online, or did you actually go to, like, Vegas or other places to actually play tournaments? It was ninety nine point nine percent online. I played a little bit in person. Okay, and like what? Um, like did so? You, did you say you actually started in high school? Is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> so did you like tell your parents, or did you just start doing it? Like, like how did this come about? I just started doing it. I mean, it's like what is great about the internet is there's very porous uh, permission systems for validating somebody's age. So I was I was not at all the only person who was quite young and playing poker online. Okay, and so 
so what did um you know did you kind of base it down to kind of like the the percentages and the math that seems to be like you become a great texas hold'em player right you like really internalize the math and then you kind of just get good good at that side and then take some risks like what was your philosophy when you kind of got into playing online poker like were you like a real loose player were you like a real mathematical player like how did all that work i read everything i could find on the subject uh books two plus two forums um you know some card runners stuff and um you know, you you gradually like actually calling back to to my friend Hasib, who I actually met when I was back when I was playing poker. Um, you know, he's written a really good book about this, about the way to approach poker, and it is a philosophy. So, your poker strategy is reflective of how you see the world in terms of um, risk mitigation and variance equations. Like, should you take you know, you because you can have you can basically come to different grand unifying theories of expected value. So, like, you can take low variance, um, low upside uh, bets with um, expected value X, and you can take high variance, uh, high potential upside uh, investments that also have expected value X. Which one should you take? It's kind of a difference in perspective. What can you do if you actually get lucky and land the uh, the high upside return? You know, maybe you can parlay that into something really exciting, um, but it's riskier. Interesting. So, what what kind of player would you describe? Were you sort of playing the the high? Let's see, the uh, the kind of the high return, high risk, high return kind of things, or were you? Did you find yourself playing that, or were you more like deliberate? Like, how would you describe your own philosophy? It evolved over time, and it evolved subject to my emotions. And the meta lesson there was: if you don't have a strong internal north star, then you become flimsy and subject to emotions, and your philosophy will bend to your emotions rather than the inverse, which is a much healthier way to live. Absolutely. So that that does seem like the real advantage. Um, having, I've not really played poker online. I played a little bit at one point, you know, in tournaments and stuff. But I always thought the advantage of just online is like repetitions, right? Getting used to like ha- like training yourself to like have the emotions, acknowledge the emotions, and then move past them, right? You know, like a bad beat or like – or doing well, right? Because I, um, I find like especially in a tournament, like – you know, it's, you know, no, unless you've done it a lot, right? Like it's, I don't know, the emotions can kind of just take over, right? I mean, you can kind of, it's just, there's almost nothing you can do. So uh, my belief is like, you know, playing online sort of desensitizes you to that just because you do it so much. Um, is that true? Or did you find that that actually helped? Or is it just more based on your personality? Yeah, it's high throughput too. You can have multiple tables open at the same time. So you can have as high velocity an experience as you want. Yeah, that's uh, well. How much? Like, I don't know. Can you can you say like what were like the, some of the biggest hands you actually played in? Like, how much money are we talking here? Uh, I mean, it was. I think the biggest pot was probably thirty thousand or fifty thousand, something around those lines. Wow, that is awesome. <laughs> did so? What did your parents? Did you ever tell your parents? Did they ever figure it out? Yeah. Um. I mean, there was one time where I was like in the car with my mom, 
I remember we were on the way home from something and she's like, why don't you ask me for allowance anymore? And I was like, well, you know, I just, <laughs> yeah, like I'm getting rake back checks and I, you know, that, that, that's sufficient. <laughs> You're like, mom, I have some news for you. Things are going pretty well. That's uh, well, that's awesome. So, because I, I don't know, I just, it seems, um, yeah, I don't know of any venture capitalists. I'm sure many of them are, but it's, it seems like a, just a good training, like risk reward and just getting used to uh, probabilities, right? Because that's one of the things that I often, you know, find myself, you know, that I don't like a lot about the media, right? Is there's always kind of the hero narrative of like a startup founder did this thing and, you know, then kind of retroactively, there's some halo effect story about how it was always predestined. But really, when I when you look forward, it's always like, well, there's a certain set of probabilities that go with all these companies. And when they break right, you know, people can do really, really well. And sometimes it doesn't work out. And it doesn't necessarily mean someone did something wrong, right? It's just sort of like that's that's just how it is. So poker seems like a good background to take into like a technology career to me. There's some benefits, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay, so you, you certainly have an appetite for risk, uh, or at least understanding risk with poker, and so you're working these um, the Amazon jobs, and then it, it looked like you actually, um, I don't know, did you do like a startup, like ad for prize? Is this something, like, what was that about? Was it a startup that you created? Can you tell that story? Yeah, that's a company that is building a set of products around advertising that represent a vision for ad tech that is not based on uh, CPM impression-based uh, advertising. Um, it's, it's a vision that is based on um, ad creative quality, which is a direction that the advertising market will eventually go in. Uh, it's it's pretty far from uh, that world today, but it is similarly a bet on the long-term asymptotic direction of marketing that Software Engineering Daily is is a bet on. Okay, and so what's your? Are you still working there, or is it like what's your relationship to it now? Yeah, it's it's an asset I built and um, and maintains uh, you know maintains its long-term. Uh, upside okay and then um and then in addition to that you you mentioned i was just looking at your linkedin that you you sort of have like a a stealth project going there and so i always think that's interesting when people put that um put that out there so like when you put you know the fact that you're working on a self a stealth project it sounds like you're lo looking for some engineering talent um like what um like, what does it really mean to, like, have a stealth project that you're working on in the background? Is it sort of something you hope one day that can take off? Is it something you're spending a lot of time on? Like, how do you approach that? Well, it's a product that I'm working on. Uh, I think, actually, the, the alpha release will probably be ready this weekend or maybe next week. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the goal of sort of saying I'm in a stealth project uh, it evokes this kind of cool stealth bomber kind of, um, <laughs> you know, vision of I'm just like in a stealth bomber operating a computer uh, and I'm looking for an engineer to join me in my stealth bomber. Uh, <laughs> but the reality is it's just like vaporware right now and hopefully it'll it'll uh, it'll be successful um, and I will certainly do everything in my power to make it successful. Uh, but it hasn't launched yet and uh, it's 
not something I can talk in clear detail about because I prefer to um, you know put things out there rather than than talk about them. Yeah, no, I I totally get it. So like that's always like a good meta conversation. Like what um you know the mission I always think uh, the real mission of any startup right is is finding product market fit and um, as you're kind of approaching this like because you're at least you know working to to launch something let's start there like what was the criteria you went through to say okay this is worth like my time and effort like why did you pick this idea versus working more on your podcast or doing something different how did you think about it i like to do multiple things uh because you know if you can build assets that have a high rate of compounding um, you know, and especially ones that have uh, compounding rates that um, like in- increase synergistically when you build other assets, it can create a really differentiated uh, upside function. And uh, you know, Ad for Prize was one of these things. Um, this this new project I'm working on is around collaboration. Um, and some gig economy related um, areas, uh, you know, podcasting and software engineering and uh, fintech and uh, music are some other areas I'm 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 interested in and working on various projects in. Um, and you know, some of these things are nascent, some of them are more fully formed, um, but it's just a, a collection of areas that I'm curious about. Makes sense. So yeah, that's. Uh... It is nice to work on different things. I think uh, far too often, right, I think people get stuck kind of doing one thing. And it's like, I don't know, I feel like so many of us have a million ideas. So it's it's good to, like, keep a lot of different things going. That's It's definitely good to be in a position that you can do that. So, Well, kind of back to the, the podcast. So, you've, you know, you played poker. You worked at uh, eBay, worked at Amazon, and then uh, built kind of your own thing. And then when did you move? So you were in Seattle for a while. And then what actually took you to San Francisco? What was the event that made you move there? I just wanted to be in the nexus of edgy ideas related to technology. And I felt like the business was stable enough that I was going to be able to afford to uh, live in San Francisco for at least a couple of years. Okay. So you, uh, started the podcast in Seattle and kind of like got it to a point where it could pay enough bills and then then you moved down is that how it that's, worked that's right okay and then how long from the launch of the podcast um how long do you felt like you know it, it threw off some revenue that was like you know that you felt like okay I can live on this this is going to pay the bills for me it was a couple months okay that's pretty good now um you went because you launched like like all of us, right? You launched with zero, right? <laughs> right. And so, um, how how quickly were you able to like you know kind of like move that audience up? Was it like pretty quick to get to? It must have been pretty quick if you could live off it um, in a few months. Like, what what was that like? I think in the early days, this is something I didn't anticipate, but there was a sort of voyeuristic sense in which the people who were listening early on were like there's no way this person can keep up a daily podcast about technical software topics and so people were just sort of like watching me waiting to like fall off the tightrope um and then those people kind of stuck around until like it didn't look like a tightrope walk anymore uh and then they told other people about it and 
um yeah so it didn't didn't take too long that's uh that's that's a funny way i've not thought of it that way but it's interesting it's almost like watching uh I don't want to say a car wreck, but it's just like someone's about to do something. You're like, okay, I'm just going to watch to see exactly <laughs> to, see, to see to see what happens. But uh, well, a daily podcast. I mean, I think it is a pretty big challenge. May, may, like, walk us through like what is a day in the life uh, of Jeff? Like, you know, when you get up, like, like are you recording five days a week? Do you have a schedule? Like, what's your production schedule? How do you make all this work? Well, there are economies of scale. Um, to most things in life. And the more you do it, the more you learn to allocate time to it effectively. And it's really less about the time that I allocate to software engineering daily than it is about how I allocate the time that is not spent on software engineering daily. So I need to spend some time away from the screen. I need to spend some time outside. I usually like to go for a run. Um, you know, I need to spend a lot of time listening to podcasts because I need to understand what makes a good podcast. I need to understand why people listen to audiobooks, so I listen to audiobooks. Uh, I need to understand why people listen to YouTube videos and if that's a potential threat to uh, to podcasting to, to, to sort of measure the ongoing durability of my business. Um, yeah, uh, so so it's it's like, you know, because doing the podcast is just not very um, strenuous for me. I, I really, I just like it. Um, and I kind of learned how to do podcasting, you know, beforehand. So it wasn't like I was like learning anything on the job. And there's a million articles about how to do a podcast. So it's, I'm not really doing anything special. I'm just doing it at a higher volume than, than uh, some other people. Yeah. And then, so I find like, how do you, um, how much time do you spend like recruiting guests or, or them emailing you? Like, is that, you've gotten to a size now where it's like, it's pretty easy to get like a good backlog of, of people to interview, or is that something that you're doing on an ongoing basis? Yeah, it's pretty easy. I mean, the world of software is just this ever expanding fractal of interesting things to look at. So some of those are, you know, people I'm reaching out to, some of them are, you know, somebody recommends something to me and, um, yeah, like I'm interview like I'm doing an interview later today with another podcaster, um, who I have tremendous respect for, the the host of the Darknet Diaries. Um, you know, he did this awesome podcast about um, about uh, fake podcast charts. Actually, like people that will hire somebody on Fiverr to um, boost their podcast, um, you know, ranking in the iTunes charts. And he did this tremendous investigation. I really recommend anybody listening to check out Darknet Diaries. I think it's episode twenty seven chart chart breakers i think and it's just this amazing episode that gives you some uh <laughs> some chilling um insight into the fakeness of the internet all right i that's a to do for me i will put the link in the show notes i will definitely listen to it because the <laughs> the idea it's a must listen it's like the it's like the fire festival documentary <laughs> of software podcasts oh there we go perfect oh. Perfect. Absolutely perfect in my wheelhouse. Uh, because yes, I think the iTunes charts, you know, you, uh, you watch them, you're like, huh, what is this? Uh, and again, like it, it, it doesn't matter, but it does matter. Right. Because when you get in there, it, it can definitely help you like get more exposure. Right. So that's why it does matter. Um, whether or not like, you know, any of it's true, right. That's it's, I don't know. It's an ongoing debate, I guess, in the podcast community, uh, community at large. Um, so, so that's that's really interesting, and and of course, like your niche of being 
software engineering, and maybe we can, you know, since you've been on and done so many interviews and discussions around software engineering, I thought maybe we'd just like start with some like kind of high level stuff, like what you see in the development community right now. So there's a ton of podcasts, a lot of stuff around developers. There's like a ton of different conferences. Um, there's a ton of different like dev devrel people now. Um, what is your observation of like the kind of the state? And this is maybe a complicated question, but I feel like there's this perception of like what software engineers want and like what people are trying to give them. And then there's the actual reality of like what a software engineer actually wants to like listen to consume and then also what they actually need to do their job. So like, do you notice this dichotomy between like people talking at software engineers versus like talking with software engineers? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, this is part of why what, you and I are doing is of value is many of the channels through which um, marketers try to reach developers are lower ROI than something like software-defined interviews um, because we are having conversations with practitioners um you know, in, in in around subjects that are going to lead to purchasing decisions of hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, and you know, it's it's just a valuable channel, and uh, you know, probably more valuable than airport advertising. And I would say airport advertising is more talking at developers, and what you and I are doing is talking to developers. Yeah, I think I think you nailed it, and I think you know, sort of like the the difference between like brand awareness versus like, you know, actually moving the ball forward, having like, some I'm type... all for brand awareness. I'm yeah. all for brand awareness. It's just, it's the, the campaign strategies of that brand advertising. Like, why are you not brand advertising more on podcasts? Like you should be. Well, no, yes, we, we a hundred percent agree. And I think, uh, you know, it's something I think that's still just, just widely misunderstood. So, you know, as we look out there and I think we both spend a lot of time, you know, talking about, you know, cloud and cloud computing and what people are building. So let's start with like, you know, the major cloud vendors. So I really think for the most part, right, it's AWS, Azure, and, and uh, GCP, right? That seems to be where the majority of the action is. So, um, so what's your take up between those three vendors? Like, what do you see people adopting the most? Is it just AWS? Have you seen any interesting trends starting to happen this year that, you know, maybe, you know, you think something new is going to change in the next, say, 12 to 18 months? Each of these major cloud providers has significant differentiation. And they look similar because they have implemented many of the same primitives, but they have different user demographics. Um, you know, they have... Uh, it, it is very early days for all of these. And... Um, you know, I think Google has um, a a very long-term vision for uh, for where the cloud is going, and uh, and I think they allocate their resources very intelligently to products. And um, you know, I think if you look at their uh, you know kind of the the money or the customer base that Google is getting today, you're not like you're not looking at the right part of the picture. Uh, it's more about like what do they have an expertise in, 
and uh, you know where can they differentiate and what is their vision for the future and how can they get to that place in the future while incurring minim- minimal technical debt, minimal extraneous services. Um, you know, and then AWS you just have as kind of like that's the default and it's the most advanced cloud, it's the most bulletproof cloud, uh, you know, the best um, best sales engine, um, just kind of, you know, it's it's the most advanced by far. I'm not I'm not the, the first person to say that. Um, and then Azure has this extremely uh, differentiated customer base, um, which leads them down an extremely differentiated direction that is uh, well calibrated to what enterprises actually want. Uh, such that they have um, less um, kind of, you know, they, they don't have to sort of just like spray and pray, like to some degree uh, AWS does. And I say that with, with tremendous love for AWS is spraying and praying, but Azure really knows what people want uh, at a really high granularity. And they're going to double down on those things that people want relentlessly. Um, so, and then you just have like a, a cornucopia of other cloud providers that are also really exciting, but, um, that's my take on the three. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's a good take and I, I think it is interesting. Um, especially, you know, Azure, right. Is, you know, the other ones that, you know, I spend time or I know, you know, more people or talk to people about it. So like IBM, Oracle, right. Very traditional enterprise vendors that for the most part, I think they would, say they uh a strategy something like this like we need to make sure we're delivering cloud features and functions and experiences for our current customers whether it be oracle or ibm right and i in in their case it feels much more challenging right the 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 battle is going to be much more uphill whereas uh microsoft and azure like really kind of just did it from the get-go they you know they and you know obviously the products microsoft products in general are well, I think a lot of people think of them as enterprise. They're very different than Oracle and IBM. So they really were able to parlay that that very tight-knit enterprise relationship into a cloud that does serve, I think, their customers in a very unique way. And, and watching Oracle and IBM trying to do it, like I, I think they have significant challenges, right? They don't have the same type of uh, advantages that Azure offered, um, which is – so I think it's just interesting, right? So that's like almost kind of back to our probabilities discussion, like – if you said our strategy is to like, you know, if you will maintain the base, right? Like it's worked for Microsoft and I think the jury's still out for IBM and Oracle and maybe some of the other cloud providers further down the list. I don't know. Would you agree with that? I think it's easy to underestimate how early we are. Uh, I mean, everything is moving in the direction of more spend, whether that is spend on private cloud, public cloud, hybrid cloud, um, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, you take a company like Oracle, they're building out their primitives and they're doing it later than the other players, some of the other players, um, you know, but they're, they're going to be fine and they're going to figure out a direction to go in that's going to make them successful. Yeah, no, and maybe some of that is just staying power, right? If you have enough money and time, right, then eventually you will get it right. And so there's certainly some some advantages to that. But to your thing about longevity, I think your comment about Google, you know, I just happen to agree with, I think it's, is that I feel like Google is, at least up to this point, I know they've had a change in leadership, but it's almost as if, like, uh, 
like like a software architect has been running the business, right? It's like we know in five or ten years we want to be here. And to your thing, your point about minimizing technical debt, like I think they have a very, you know, firm technical vision of like how to build, you know, large-scale software, cloud-based software, and what it should look like. Because they've it, already seen the future. Yeah, and I think that's exactly where, I guess, Borg and all of the stuff that they've done before. But they, the fact that, like, what impresses me as an outsider looking in is that so far I'd say they have not really wavered from that vision. Like, because a lot of other places would get distracted. They'd be whatever, whether it's a Gardner Magic Quadrant or, like, a new feature that somebody released that they'd say, we got to have that, right? We got to, like add that thing but to me it's it's always seemed like you know with like the release of kubernetes and kind of just their whole approach right the k native and, and where they're going is like no no we know exactly where we want to go and and, the, and to your your point right i think the belief internally there is like when they get there they will be dominant because they will have be if you will they will have the right solutions and the right architecture that really lets them scale I wouldn't say they're they're going to be dominant, but they're going to be just fine. Yeah. Well, I think it's just like you know whether they are or they aren't dominant. I just feel like if you're in a meeting there, like that's sort of like to me like what they're telling themselves. This is what's going to let us, you know, you know, if you will, dominate it. And and maybe not. Maybe in the end, right? They're, you know, uh, being second in the cloud business or just you know being part of this growth, right? Is is going to be make them successful either way. Um, but now I know like there's been a lot of speculation. More recently, that um, their uh, their new chief executive there from Oracle, right, is uh, potentially wants to acquire a company, something he's done throughout his career. So, what, what do you think? Do you think Google one should they requ- uh, acquire some new companies, and, and do you think we're going to see a bunch of acquisitions in say the next twelve to eighteen months? I haven't thought about this very much. Um, I think uh, you know, aqua hires can make sense. You know, if but I, I I don't really know. I don't have a good good answer to to that question. I don't think. I, so let's see. Um, I mean, companies that would be a good acquisition for Google. I don't know. I mean, it's it's so, such a case by case basis because mm-hmm. like most acquisitions just don't work out, and there's a, a lot of reasons why acquisitions just don't work out. Uh, and those are as true today as as they were, um, you know, ten years ago. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think when I think about it, um, the stuff that you kind of like see thrown around, like like Alassian, right? Um, I think sometimes people talk about Salesforce, and you know, so so those are the ones. Because I mean, sure, certainly Google and all of these companies will continue to do like some type of like small tuck-in acquire acquisitions, right? You know, wherever there's a piece of technology or group, I think that. That's just sort of normal operating procedure. Um, but what I do wonder is, is because I think this is kind of back to what we're talking about, the vision. If if um, if you see Oracle make like some really large acquisition, you know, whatever it may be, then I think that may be a sign that that there is some like impatience within that that organization that like, hey, we're just we're getting too far behind. Like we can't just build out the thing that we want to build. There's definitely some big things that are missing or to our thing about awareness is like we just we really need to have a certain amount of revenue and scale just in the cloud market at at large to be compelling to people. I think that will be like a signal that that's happening. Um, but I don't know, like anyone else, like you know, you just you just never know, right? What what's going to happen? But there it's was such a, it's mm-hmm. such a case by case, uh, such a case by case thing. You know, like the Red Hat acquisition makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, 
a Salesforce acquisition. Maybe that would be interesting. Uh, I have no idea. Um, but it's really a case-by-case basis. Like Citus Data, I think, makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, it's, it's often easier to see these things in, in retrospect uh, making a lot of sense. Like I think Anchor, the Anchor acquisition from Spotify makes a lot of sense. But it's totally a, a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fun to watch, for sure. You mentioned Red Hat IBM there. What, what do you think of, of that acquisition? What, you said that you thought it, was, uh, it made a lot of sense. Like, what, makes, what made it uh, logical to you? Um, well, I mean, like, you have kind of sales channel overlap there. Uh, you know, you have Red Hat in, in, its, in its ability to really develop the OpenShift uh, product um, has shown an ability to like I would consider that like it's almost like in the same category as uh, Intel kind of pivoting to you know that classic like Intel moving from memory chips to CPUs or, or whatever that story is you know just like this tremendous tectonic shift within the company uh, although I think is is kind of an adjunct business because they still have like their 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 classic um, rel business. Uh, but it's like that's that's showing some real uh, late stage innovation ability within the company. So like that at a fundamental level is something IBM could use. And then the OpenShift potential, um, you know, sales channel development there is just is just tremendous as well. Um, so I don't know. I see a lot of a lot of good overlap. Yeah, I think OpenShift is the kind of the asset to watch, right? As um... Red Hat, you know, officially goes into IBM at some point. I think I don't know. I think it closes later this year, right? Uh, that'll be like to me. That's the thing that will kind of give you an indication of what's happening. Of like, how much of OpenShift really becomes sort of the focus of like IBM's cloud efforts, because um, there are a bunch of different things. I think you know, a lot, there's always discussion about people worried about like Rel business and some of the other things, and I, I really think those will be left alone. I think those businesses are solid. I don't, you know, like occasionally you hear about people like, oh well. I'm going to move from RHEL because now it's owned by IBM. I, I don't know. I just don't. I feel like a lot of those, like that fear and uncertainty is not really warranted. Um, but I do think if you're, if, if the acquisition truly pays off, it'll pay off because OpenShift, uh, the platform really kind of, if you will, takes over the IBM cloud story. Um, so that'll be a lot of fun to watch this, this coming year as well. Uh, what about Kubernetes? Like we've talked, at least I've talked, I feel like endlessly about Kubernetes. <laughs> Maybe you've, you've avoided it more or less, but uh, it feels like there's there's less to say this year. I feel like it's it's the dominant you know container orchestration platform. The CNCF is you know, managing it, and uh, you know it feels pretty well established. Like, do you think anything, any or expect any major changes in that world this upcoming year? Oh, I think there's more to say than ever, uh, and it's it's funny because. Uh, um, I did a survey recently for the listeners, and there were a number of people who were like, stop doing shows about this Kubernetes thing. I don't care about it. <laughs> and what I'm trying to say is, no, this is like really important. This makes distributed systems much easier to run. Um, and if you're starting a software business, it's it's a gigantic – if you want to start a software business, it's a gigantic opportunity. There's a te- tectonic shift taking place across the industry uh, in terms of how people are installing and deploying software and what kinds of new software can get developed. And you just like, if you've ever taken a distributed systems class, like it is just, it's the worst. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so impossible to do anything in a distributed systems. And Kubernetes, Kubernetes has made it really easy. And, and you have these twin forces 
of Kubernetes and cloud. And um, it's it's just almost impossible to see how much uh, growth potential and um, you know opportunity for collaboration across major enterprises that uh, can sort of meet at the Kubernetes table uh, and and have uh, you know this cross collaboration between Google and Amazon and and Facebook and it's it's just it is a it is a bright bright future. And, uh, and, you know, this is like not even getting into, you know, the necessity of good distributed systems infrastructure that we'll need to uh, build crypto related stuff that, um, that is easier to use. Uh, you know, I see Kubernetes as, as a great potential engine for, uh, for building the kind of, um, you know, far flung ideas that, uh, that these uh, distributed systems, um, uh, cypherpunks are looking at in in crypto, and and we've seen so little overlap between the crypto community and the Kubernetes community. Uh, that's something we'll see we'll see more and more of. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think there's too much Kubernetes talk. I think there's not enough. Yeah, <laughs> well, good because that means we're <laughs> we've got plenty to talk about. And I do think when you uh, and sometimes I think Kubernetes, you know, there's the cloud orchestration project, and then I think there's the shorthand for like everything all the projects in the cncf so i i like to think of it as you know the real action is sort of like in the, if you go to the cncf uh, page right like kind of the you know the projects that are sort of just emerging right i can't remember what they call them like there's like emerging and there's like accepted and so because you see that's where you see kind of to your point where like all these other use cases start to emerge and then like new open source projects and initiatives sort of you know, get spun up. And that's kind of like a, I just find that like to be like a good dashboard as to like, what are people thinking about? Like, what is, what if this group of people come together to like try to fix or some kind of functionality they want to add? Um, and then of course, like, you know, you see the, these presentations and these project projects get promoted over time. So, um, so certainly, right. There's going to be a lot of, a lot of work in that going forward. But um, before we run out of time, I think, you know, you're, you're in San Francisco, you live in day, uh, live and die if you will with uh developers and cloud native technologies and things like that so like what's on your like up and coming list on your radar that maybe the rest of us aren't seeing is there any specific trend technology or company that's caught your attention lately that you know that maybe the rest of us should be looking at the the knowledge work gig economy is very underestimated um, the knowledge work gig economy will create more transparent, efficient market forces on developer salaries. And we'll find out that many developers are underpaid in their corporate environments. Uh, we'll find that, um, you know, some developers are overpaid and, uh, and we'll see a market for shorter-term engagements with more flexible working circumstances. And this will increasingly upend the, um, the conventions of the major corporations. Uh, many of these major corporations are able to function uh, at the margin um, – at the profit margin that 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 they are able to, um, because 
developers are are systematically underpaid and um, and and convinced of certain cult-like beliefs uh, that convince them to work on software that's not fun to work on, uh, and then you also have kind of these um, you know untoward mechanisms for getting um, foreign-born developers to work at your American company um, in an underpaid capacity. And um, these things are just going to get ironed out over time, uh, and it's not going to be good for the established players. Um, on the other hand, the businesses of the established players are going to grow and grow and grow uh, because you know you have the world moving towards increasingly running on um, software, uh, and um, and you know in in all this fracas, uh, more and more developers are having more and more leverage. It's becoming easier and easier to start a quote unquote indie hacker business, um, and so you know it's just going to be the economics are going to be more and more laid bare. And they're going to be more and more talked about, and it's really going to change um, the 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 kind of creative economics uh, for developers. I like it. That's a that's a bold prediction. I think uh, I've often wondered to myself, like uh, you know, in Hollywood, there's very much like the studio mindset, like a group of people like convene to like make a movie, right? And then I'm, you know, they make that movie and negotiate different salaries and then you know they kind of move on right when that's that that project is over and things like that and i i sometimes i feel like you sort of see this happen um in open source right and like different you know groups come together from different companies to like produce some piece of software but for, there is that missing link though like how do this how does that group usually those people are paid by like larger corporations but um is there a way eventually for to what you're saying for it to kind of all just finally kind of you know everyone sort of can negotiate their own thing. The project sort of has like some natural life cycle, and people come and go um, to it based on their need. So I'm, I think that's a, I find that like a very optimistic uh, project uh, prediction, and I like it. So hopefully it'll happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, to the the studio point, um, uh, have you read the the Michael Ovitz book yet, or is that on your reading list? Which uh, which one is it? Who 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 is Michael Ovitz? Or who no. is Mike Ovitz? All right, I need to really read this. Good good recommendation. Uh, so yeah, it's it's about the guy who started CAA and um and it's he's it's a it's a biography he wrote mm -hmm. and um and uh, yeah I just I think anybody would anybody listening to this this show still um he's, would would like it because it's it's it is about Hollywood and CAA is this is this talent agency it became the biggest talent agency uh, in um, in Hollywood. And one thing that was interesting is because, th so they got basically everybody. So they got all the actors, all the directors, you know, the producers, or I don't know, producer, um, musicians. They basically had all the creative talent at a certain point. And I think, I think it's gotten disaggregated a little bit, but, you know, in, in this period of time where they had all the talent, they were able to dictate the prices. They were able to dictate the market. Uh, and because they're the only game in town. So, so like they are able to see, you know, okay, you know, Brad Pitt's going to get this much money for this movie. Uh, and therefore, you know, we're setting the market for, for X. Um, whereas, you know, where the world is going is more transparent markets. Um, and, uh, and sort of like a, a better, 
um, sampling of what makes up an efficient market. Like an efficient market is is limited. A, mar- a market's efficiency is limited by the sample size that that market can um, can like get opinions from. And so, you know, that's why I'm like a big fan of the the knowledge work gig economy is it's just a bigger, more transparent market than this, um, you know, like shadowy, uh, like big corporations deciding what people are going to be paid um, sort of thing. And um, and yeah, it's just like I don't I don't know. It's it's I, I, it's that's that's exciting to me. I like it. I'm all in. All right. Well, I'm gonna as soon as I get off. That's going in the audible, uh, in the audible list immediately. That's a good. It's so good. It's I'm such in. a good book. It's such a good book. All right. Well, fantastic. All right. Well, listen. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And of course, everyone needs to go to softwareengineeringdaily.com, and there they can subscribe to your your daily podcast. Right. I always have something to listen to. But what else? Uh, is there any other places people should find you online? Any anything else you'd like to recommend to them? Uh, you can go to jeffmyerson.com. I have uh, links to a bunch of different things. Uh, you can sign up for a newsletter I have of podcast recommendations. So it has like podcasts I'm listening to and, uh, you can find my music. Uh, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm very serious about my music. I take it. Um, it's, it's something I've been doing for 15 years and, um, yeah, you can find links to other stuff. So yeah, I guess jeffmyerson.com would be the single source of truth. I like it. All right. I will make sure that's in the show notes and everyone should go visit that. Uh, we're always looking for good recommendations. So podcast, audiobooks, music. Sounds like the ideal place. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. And of course, if this is the first time you've ever listened, make sure to go to softwaredefinedinterviews.com. There you can subscribe to our, our podcast and sh- find links to previous shows. And you can also go to softwaredefinedtalk.com. And uh, there you can listen to a weekly roundup of all the tech news with myself, uh, Michael Cote and Matt Ray. And uh, if you don't want to do any of that, but you just want from some free stuff, if you email me your postal address at stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, I'll send you a free laptop sticker. I'll even send you two or three if you want them. Just tell me how many you want. And with that, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Brandon.